Our text is from verse 27. Christ in you. The Apostle Paul is often summarizing the content of his gospel ministry. And at each summary, we see a different aspect of it. Think of Acts 20, 27, in which he says that among the Ephesians, he declared the whole counsel of God. That speaks of the foundation of his ministry as well as the breadth of it. Think of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, in which he speaks of the rule of his ministry and its purpose, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That speaks of the practical end of the message. Think of 1 Corinthians 2.2. I desire to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. This speaks of the message according to its central objective facts. Jesus Christ and his death for sinners. Now, without which, the practical end that we just heard of cannot be met. But here we have another summary, and in a certain sense it combines them all in just three words, Christ in you. Notice we have Christ, not just in himself, in his work outside of us and for us, but Christ in you. That is a Christ received by faith and applied unto every saving grace. It's a three-word summary of the gospel. Consider two points from this text. We see first the foundation of the gospel in this word, Christ. The anointed one in his three offices as the prophet, the priest, and the king. This speaks to us of his person, that from eternity he was and remains forever true God. The word was with God, we read in John, and the word was God. He is divine. This very chapter speaks to us of that divine Savior, verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, For by him were all things created. The work of creation being an infinite work, it cannot be done through a finite instrument. The Father made the world through the Son, and that's a proof the Son is divine. But this divine person, the Word of God, he came in time and was made flesh. And in that flesh, he was able to do the work for which he was sent. So we see his person as well as His work, which is implied in this word Christ, it's what he was anointed for. And that work is especially seen there on the cross, which we've already had so frequently put before us in our singing and reading of Psalm 22. His work is spoken of in this chapter as well, verse 20. And having made peace through the blood of his cross. We've been reconciled, verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death. If you think of ancient summaries of the faith like the Apostles' Creed, this is 
what takes central place. And so it always ought in the Christian faith. It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came in the flesh, who died for sinners, who rose again from the dead, who ascended into heaven, who sits at the right hand of God the Father, and who is coming to judge again the living and the dead on the last day. That is the foundation of the gospel. But then we see, second, the appropriation of this, the making of this foundation to belong to sinners, the building, so to speak, of a house upon that salvation in these words, in you. Now, these words could be taken first corporately. This you, as you know, reading our translation, is plural. It doesn't say in thee, but in you. And it's the same in as is in the very verse where it says, the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Same word, therefore, among. But here, in, and there is a sense in which Christ is in the church corporately as a body. We sang of that at the end of Psalm 22. I will tell of thy name to my brethren in the midst of the church. I will give thee praise. Christ did die for this fact, for this goal, that he could be in and among his people. That he could be, in the words of Paul in Romans 8.29, the firstborn among many brethren. But this corporate truth ought not take away from the individual and the personal. The way, indeed, that Christ is in the church, at least savingly, is by being inside the hearts of the people in the church, of being in the believer. The words that come just after hope of glory have to speak of that, have to point us to that, because there's no way that the church merely as a body has a hope of glory. We know in the church, as we've even heard, that there are those who won't be in glory, who don't have hope because they have no faith. And yet here, Christ in the heart by faith, that is the hope of glory. And look at verse 28, how Paul takes this and makes it personal. Whom we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. Christ in you, that is all of you, individually believers. Think of how Christ speaks of this in John 14, verse 20. And that day ye, again the plural, shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. A little further in John 15, verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. That abiding happens through faith. It's through faith that we have this union with Christ in which believers are in him and he is in the believer. And that then is what brings the hope of glory. And that's what brings then the ability to grow in the perfection that he speaks of in the next verse, that we may present every man 
perfect in Christ Jesus. So that's our text. We see a foundation and the appropriation. Christ in you. Let's consider then a doctrine from this text. It's that the gospel demands for salvation the subjective, personal, and individual appropriation of Christ by faith. Again, the gospel demands for salvation the subjective, personal, and individual appropriation of Christ by faith. I want to prove this to you in three steps from the scriptures. One, we already heard this morning, but it needs to be repeated, that by sin, all men are utterly unable to save themselves. We are born dead, unable unto all spiritual good. No hope without God in the world. This should underline from the very start the absolute necessity of faith in Christ. There is no hope to have any faith in ourselves. There's nothing to hope in. No spiritual ability, no spiritual goodness. But second, following on that, that Christ's person and Christ's work are necessary for salvation. Think of it. It was man that sinned, and therefore man has to die for sin. That means if anyone is to be saved, a man has to die, but no sinful man can die for others. He has to die for his own sins. But even if there were and there is not a mere man who has no sin, then he couldn't give a cost enough to pay for, for anyone else's salvation. Because sin is against an infinitely good God, it's infinitely evil. This is why hell is eternal. Because a finite creature can never pay off an infinite debt. And we can't receive an infinite punishment all at once without being totally destroyed. And therefore hell goes on forever Do you see how that also teaches us that even a sinless man, just a mere man, could not give a sufficient price to pay? It would only be finite. It wouldn't even begin to pay our debt to sin. Do you see how then it was necessary that we have the God-man, Jesus Christ? Why, he had to have a divine nature. That this word, the divine person, He took on flesh so that in that flesh he could die. But if he were not the word, that death of the flesh would not have enough value. But because he is a divine person, the giving of his flesh has the value of his person. It's an infinitely precious gift. And therefore it was able, and in fact it did, pay an infinite ransom for sinners who had done infinite evil against an infinitely good God. Do you understand? 
even from this one reasoning why it was necessary, why it is necessary to have Christ, the God-man, for your salvation, how these truths of his person show us the necessity to come to him. But that leads us immediately third, built on that, to the fact that Christ, in the glory of his person, and Christ, in that most wonderful work he did to give himself as a ransom for sinners, is completely useless. I mean no ill against Christ. This is against us. Is completely useless to the sinner if he is not received by faith. Christ is sufficient in himself to save a thousand worlds of sinners. His cross and the sacrifice he made there is so infinitely precious before God. It's enough to save all who would ever come to him. But the fact remains that if someone does not come to him, he will not be saved. Again, I take you to that familiar passage, John 3, in which Christ is speaking to Nicodemus. After speaking of the need to be born again, he speaks of the need of faith. You know verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but of everlasting life. Christ goes on to underline that necessity of faith in verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. To have Christ for salvation means to believe in him, and without faith, no salvation. And this faith has to be true faith. We'll speak more of its character later. But John, again, tells us in chapter 1, verse 12, what it means truly to believe in Christ. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Notice the synonym he uses for believing on Christ's name. It's receiving him. It's taking Christ as he has offered to us in the gospel. But it's also, as we already heard from John 15, spoken of as abiding in him, maintaining yourself in him, resting in him, giving whole self, all our soul, to Christ and casting everything upon him. Even as we might cast ourselves into our bed after a long day of work, delivering ourselves completely, trusting that that bed will hold us. That's a little picture of what it is to receive Christ and to trust him for salvation. So we've seen from this text and from the rest of Scripture that the gospel demands the individual appropriation, that receiving of Christ by faith. I trust this simple truth is not new to you. I trust you also agree how often do we need to hear it. How often, again, do we need to hear this command of the gospel, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's consider now how to apply this doctrine in our life, and I bring you today three applications. The first is that of examination. 
I ask you, is Christ in you? Speaking here, not corporately, I see Christ in your midst here in his graces, and thank God for that. But personally, is Christ in thee? In you, singular, individually. To answer this question, you need to test your faith, because of course, as we've seen, that's how Christ would be in you. So the question really is, do you believe in Christ? It's easy to say yes to this, but you need to be able to prove it. How do you prove it? How do you test your faith? Well, I want to give you three helps, three directions you can look at upon your faith. You can consider its object, its nature, and its fruits. Consider first the object of your faith. You say that you believe. In what do you believe? What's the ground? What's the object of your faith? Is it Christ? Is it Christ's work? Or is it, on the other hand, something else? Perhaps yourself. I believe in myself, you might say. Perhaps your family, Christian family, if you have that children, it's a great blessing. But not a blessing to be trusted in for your eternal salvation. It's a means to bring you Christ. It is not Christ. Ask yourself, is that true? Do you think that you're saved because merely you belong to a Christian family? What about Christian baptism? It's a sign and a seal of these things we're speaking of in believers. And it will become so in the elect who do not yet believe. But it itself is not the ground of your hope. It ought not be the object of your faith. What about church membership? What about participation in the Lord's Supper? We could add many other things. What separates all these from faith? It's that they're outward. It's that they're objective. It's that they can be done, at least outwardly and objectively, without any participation of your heart. The question is not do you have those things, but do you have Christ? I bring to you again a familiar verse. Hear it anew. Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. No man and not in any other way. So test your faith by its object. Second, you may test your faith by its nature. Faith has three components. Consider them briefly with me. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Considering the first two together, you have to know and agree to certain facts. A faith without any facts is no faith. There's no such thing as an entirely ignorant faith. A mere faith that doesn't have any content. You need to know certain truths. Do you know, for example, that Jesus Christ is God and that he is man? If you don't know that, you can't be saved. Do you know that he died on the cross for sinners and gave his precious blood as a ransom for them? Do you know that he rose again? Do you know that he's in heaven? Do you know that he's coming again? These are basics of the faith. They're not only in the Apostles and the Nicene Creed and other ancient statements of faith. 
They're in our catechism. These are the things, children, that your parents and your pastor and your elders feed you, so to speak, the spiritual milk that is the beginning of every Christian life. Do you know and do you agree with these things? You must have true faith, but that is not enough. What makes true faith saving is not just knowledge and assent, but trust. Do you, as we heard from John 1.12, receive Christ? Think of many other biblical synonyms for believing. Do you rest in Christ? Have you come to Christ? Do you look to Christ? Have you fled to Christ? Do you embrace Christ? Have you kissed Christ? the Son of God. To put it in the terms of our text, are you in him and is he in you? That's how you know. Can you say with Paul in Galatians 2.20, which I'll read to you, Can you say, I am crucified with Christ? Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Or can you say with him in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ. That brings us right then to the third test of your faith, and that's by its fruits. James says in 2.18, You show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith by my works. For faith without works is dead. Now, it's not the works that come from faith that justify. Faith alone and only as it receives Christ justifies. Make no mistake in that. But also make no mistake that the same faith that justifies is also alive and bearing fruit. Is that true? of your faith? Does it work through love, as Paul says in Galatians 5, 6? To say it another way, does your faith keep the law of God? I don't ask in a legal sense, as if you kept it without any failure. I know the answer to that. But in an evangelical sense, does your heart long to keep the law of God, and is there good fruit in your life from your faith? Without that, it's not true faith. Is there a holiness that marks your faith and the life you live out of it? For as we read in Hebrews 12, 14, we must seek holiness without which no man will see the Lord. I ask you even in your life, do you have what we can call a Christian perfection? Paul speaks of that in verse 28 and elsewhere. We read of it throughout the Bible, again, not of a legal perfection, but this is the perfection required of Abraham in the covenant when he says, walk before me and be thou perfect. What does this mean? Well, it means you have the perfection of sincerity. That is to say, you're not a hypocrite. Your faith, though it be weak, is true and not made up. You're not pretending. Your faith and the life that flows from it, then, 
is also perfect in its parts. And what I mean by that is that you're not like a man who has no legs. You're not a Christian who obeys seven out of the Ten Commandments. You don't have half the fruits of the Spirit and not the other half. Because, of course, if you don't have the other half, you don't have the first half either. You're just lying to yourself. There's a fullness and a proportion to the Christian life. Though there is failure in every part of the Christian life, we admit, every part is there. It's the perfection of a baby that comes forth with all of its members. Is that true of your life? Of course, we don't speak of a perfection of degrees, as if in every part we've achieved, and there couldn't be any perfection added. Absolutely not in this life. But nonetheless, there is a sense in which we are always aiming in that direction. And I ask you if this is true of your life. This is another way to test your faith. Because faith always aims at absolute perfection, though in this life it never reaches it. Soon enough it will, dear Christian. You will have no sin in glory. But is that your aim? And do you, as your pastor so wonderfully exhorted you recently, do you keep moving toward that end? These are ways to test your faith by its object, its nature, and its fruits. This, then, is the foundation for the next two applications. First, this truth rebukes us, and indeed it must, because we have to address here the reality of presumption, as if it were enough to just hear about Christ or to name him or to have some sort of faith that acknowledges the truth about him and yet to be indifferent whether Christ is in you, to think that that's not important or that you can get on fine without it, we call that presumption because you're presuming on something that's not actually there. This presumption can take place in your assurance. This is very deadly. It is so good to seek assurance. Oh, and even better to have it, to know I'm going to heaven, to know that Christ is mine, that he died not just for sinners, but for me, and that he'll never let me go. I want all of you to have this. I want all of you to be able to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make us ashamed. But God forbid you have it in the wrong way. God forbid you would go leaping with joy into the pit of hell because you were wrong about whether you were saved or not. You need true assurance. An assurance that's true, it's solid, cannot rest alone in those objective things that we spoke of. Those outward things, the facts of the gospel, the facts of Christ's person, the sacraments received in his name that speak to us of these things, church membership, all these outward things in the Christian life, Do they help for our assurance? Yes, they do. They're actually wonderful helps for assurance. We can look outside of us and see objective, factual things. However, we have to look at them in the right way. And the only way to properly look at them and to derive any proper comfort from them is to know, first of all, that you have the subjective, the personal, that Christ is, in fact, 
in you. None of those things should comfort you unless you know this fact, that Christ is in you. You can think of all those outward things as so many life rafts that God has thrown to dying sinners. And you can say, look, a life raft, and you can be filled with hope, but you can still drown if your hand is not upon that raft. The raft might be completely and and beautifully saving in itself, but it won't save you unless you take it. Have you taken it? See, this is the foundation of true assurance. And then you can take comfort that the life raft, yes, does float. Praise the Lord. So in assurance, we need to rebuke presumption. But we also need to rebuke presumption in preaching. There are two ditches here in preaching, and they're both presumptuous. So let's consider them, that we might seek a biblical balance. There is preaching on the one hand that is merely practical. Preaching that is all application with little doctrine. Preaching that's always calling for faith, always calling for obedience, always calling for self-examination, always bringing home to bear all the truths of God's word upon the life, and even upon political and social life, which is far too rare in the pulpit today. To hear these things, there's a joy because they are so rare. This is to preach all in you, and yet little to know Christ. This would be like the house, but no foundation. When the storms come, it will fall. We can call this legalistic preaching. All the duties, but no ability, because there's no foundation. There's no Christ who is at the heart of the gospel. That's one ditch. But on the other side, there is the ditch of a merely Christ-centered preaching. Of course, preaching should be Christ-centered. But this is Christ preached in his person, his work, and the revelation of the mystery, even going through all the Bible and using what's sometimes called biblical theology to open up Christ in all the scriptures, which is a marvel and a joy. But all that's preached is Christ and not in you. Christ, in this kind of preaching, replaces faith, replaces repentance, replaces Holiness and self-examination, it certainly replaces politics, which has no room in such preaching. When instead, Christ and those glorious truths about him should be the chief motivation, the chief reason to seek all those other things. This would be like a foundation without a house. The foundation might be solid, but there's nothing to live in. And if you try, you're going to die of exposure, and Christians under this kind of preaching do. If the other preaching was legalist, this is antinomian, which is to say it's an error that takes grace and makes it an excuse not to do our duty. And preachers have a thousand ways of making this sound holy. You know, both are real problems in the church today, but if you open your eyes, you'll see this is the bigger problem, at least in our Reformed churches. And ministers, they'll say things like this. Well, I leave application to the Holy Spirit. 
That sounds very holy, doesn't it? It's not. Because the Holy Spirit can say in response to this, but I left application to you. Of course, not by power. It's not man's power that makes men change. It's the power of the Holy Ghost. But I made you, Christ would say to such a minister, I made you to be a preacher of these things. I made you to be a means without which you should not expect your people to believe, repent, obey, or to do anything that they ought to do. Paul says that right after our text. Look at his ministry. Whom we preach, that is Christ. How? Warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. This is to proclaim the whole counsel of God. This is to use the scripture for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And the lack of this is one thing that God condemns in Ezekiel 34 when he speaks to shepherds who do not feed the sheep. Such preaching needs to be rebuked. But third, then, I bring you an application of comfort. If in our first application you have sought your heart and though your faith is weak, though you wish you built your house more firmly upon that foundation, though you see such lack in your own fruits, you can't deny they're there. If that is true, my friend, then you have both Christ and he's in you. You have the full gospel, and therefore you have a full salvation. Think of what rich comfort this ought to bring you. First, that the one who's in you is Christ. It is no mere man dwelling in your heart. Of course, no mere man could do that. It is the Son of God dwelling in your heart through the Holy Ghost. And this man who is God, as God is omnipotent. He is mighty to save. You have the infinite power of God at work in your own soul. And because Christ is no mere man, he does not change like men. He is, as scripture says, the same yesterday and today and forever. He, the one dwelling in your heart, is the one who says to you, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Who says to his whole church and every individual in it, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And if God has, as Paul says elsewhere, begun such a good work in you, you can be certain he will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. It is Christ that's in you. But think of also of this fact that this Christ is in you. 
He's not only in heaven in his human nature. He's not only among you in this church. He is in you intimately and individually. You have by faith a closer union with Christ and from it a more intimate communion than you can have with any man. You think of the Song of Solomon, how it uses many images of human marriage. But they only begin to paint the picture of the intimacy of a believer's fellowship with Christ. Christ in our very souls, working by the power of his spirit to work in us and through us. This should be a comfort to you, especially because of the fact that in this age, Christ is not the only thing in you. There also still is sin in you. There's sorrow in you. There are all sorts of things that one day Christ will purge away, and yet today he's not. But yet, my friend, he's there. He's there. And in principle, that means all those things will be gone soon. This light affliction, which is but for a moment that we now have and so presses our soul, if Christ is in there, it's all going to be gone away soon. If Christ is in, in us, the one who objectively and outside of us crushed the serpent's head there on the cross, don't you think it's true what Paul says in Romans 16, that the God of peace will bruise Satan under your feet shortly, quickly, soon? Christ is in you. And in this little three-word phrase should be for you, believer, a world of comfort. And I exhort you to take it. May the Lord help us. Let's stand to pray. Father, we thank, that you have, we thank you that you have preached to us a whole gospel. We exult in the objective facts that Christ came, that Christ has died, that Christ rose again and that he's at the right hand now. And we rejoice to see him in all the scriptures. But Lord, we thank you that this Christ is no Savior outside of us only, but that he has by grace come and dwelt in our hearts, that he's dwelling in our hearts through faith, and that through that faith we have access to all the treasures that he has purchased by his infinitely precious sacrifice. Lord, thank you for this mystery revealed to us in your word. Christ in you. And we pray, Lord, that as we press on toward glory, that we would have hope. We pray for those who do not yet have Christ in them, that he would, by the power of his saving grace, come into their hearts and make his home there. And we pray, Lord, for ourselves, that you would make more and more our heart to be a suitable dwelling for this Savior, that more and more 
we would cleanse ourselves from all filthiness and make our heart a beautiful dwelling for this beautiful Savior, that he who overflows with all the spices and fragrances of that grace you've poured on him, that he would share with us his anointing, and we would be more and more like him until that day in which we will have in our hearts nothing but Christ, no sin, no sorrow anymore. Bring it soon, Lord, and help us to press on toward that end.